If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Hello, and welcome to Life of the Week where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. Amelia Earhart is an icon of aviation history, smashing records and inspiring fellow female pilots. However, She's perhaps most famous for her doomed attempt to circumnavigate the globe in 1937, which ended in her mysterious disappearance. Rhiannon Davis speaks to historian Claire Mully to learn more about Amelia's adventure-filled life. So for my first question then, who was Amelia Earhart in a nutshell? Well, she was a pioneering American aviator and became famous in 1932 when she was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. And thinking about the start of her life then, can you tell us about when she was born? Yes, she was born in Kansas in 1897. And her parents were some of those early Americans who crossed through America in a horse and cart. Um, They were pioneers of a different kind. And her mother would have ridden side saddle in long skirts. Um, And her father was uh, a more troubled character. He sadly became an alcoholic. So although her mother was a minor heiress, um, they got through that money and she grew up with quite a bit of instability as well. So it was really, it was quite a, a filmic upbringing, I would say. Her mother was quite ahead of her times in many ways. So she would dress Amelia and her younger sister Muriel in bloomers and let them go out and play in bloomers, which was quite shocking back in the day when girls were meant to be in white pinafores. So they would go around, you know, catching frogs and hunting and they set up a a go-kart. Amelia loved that. When she was seven, her father took her to the St. Louis World Fair and Amelia loved the look of the roller coaster. So when she came back, she borrowed a saw and stole some wood and knocked together her own roller coaster from the roof of her father's tool shed. Absolutely terrifying. 
terrifying. Her mum made her take it down. But it was this very free, wild... You know, her father, when she was nine years old, he gave her a .22 rifle and told her to clear the barn of rats. A, a nine-year-old, you know, child... And soon she was she was going off to a lot of these state fairs to see what was going on in the world. Saw her first aircraft when she was 10 years old. Wasn't very impressed with it, really. She'd rather go back to the roller coaster. But yeah, she was living this, you know, a big thrill-seeking childhood as well. That's so interesting that she wasn't impressed by her first aeroplane. When she first saw an aeroplane, she said it was just rusty wire and wood. And of course, these these pioneering aircraft were very fragile. Some of them used bamboo and canvas and very thin planks of wood. So they were, you know, terrifying bits of machinery. And, uh, and she was after the thrill of a wildlife and something a bit more robust, I think. And that's what she was thinking. So before she becomes a pilot then, how does she envision her life coming out? What kind of careers does she want to get into? She had a very strong social conscience. Um, she loved reading. She, was, she thought reading was an adventure as well. So she read a lot of George Bernard Shaw and Dostoevsky and people with a lot of social content. And she was actually visiting relatives in Canada during the First World War when she saw a lot of veterans who were coming back from the front with major disabilities. Some of them were missing limbs. And she she thought that this was something she could lend her energies to. So she volunteered with the um, the VAD, the Voluntary Aid Detachment, and she never qualified as a nurse, but she was an assistant helping. And then she decided to take a medicine degree. So she went to Columbia University in New York to study medicine, a med student. She was always having a bit of a wild time. Columbia University has this very famous library with a big white dome on it, and she would climb to the top of the library. And of course, in you know hard leather shoes, she didn't have any rubber soles or anything. She'd get terribly told off for it, and she'd respond to that by getting her lecturer to climb up with her next time. You know, so she was always quite a daredevil. But um, they they ran out of money in the end. Her mum couldn't afford to keep her at university, and she took work sort of social work, really, working in a place called Denison House, uh, which was based on Toynbee Hall in London, part of the settlement movement. And she was um, teaching settler families in America, so teaching them English, um, teaching them, I guess we call it citizenship skills today, and sometimes driving around the country as well, doing outreach work, in which case she would see aircraft in airfields as well. So when is it then that she first develops an interest in aviation? Well, she took her first flight in 1920, and she had gone to uh, another of these state fairs with her father. And her father paid her, paid $10 for her to go up on a joyride. She had 10 minutes in the air. And it was an open biplane, one of these very, very dangerous. I mean, there were no parachutes or anything. Up she went and she was taken up in a pilot who later became a world speed record setter. So I imagine it was very daring. And she said, as soon as we left the ground, I knew I had to fly. Um, so she was immediately swept up once she had a go at it. So that was 19... 19- 20, and she determined then to become a pilot, but there were two massive barriers. The first one was money. It was very expensive and she didn't have money. So she took a whole range of jobs. She was a truck driver. She was selling sausages. She was a stenographer, I think, at a photograph studio. Um, and she would save money. So she would always walk the four miles to the airfield. Uh, the other problem is even when she got there, when she'd saved enough money, she thought it would take $1,000 altogether to get her licence. But when she got there, she found that none of the men would take her up because there were sort of social propriety issues. So she eventually found a female pilot, a woman uh, with the wonderful name of Netta Snook. She was just one year older than Amelia and they became good friends. And it was Netta that took her up and taught her to fly. So how is it then that she first gains fame? Well, 
1927, she she shot to fame with this rather ridiculous flight. Um, there was an American heiress called Amy Guest who wanted to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic, but she wasn't planning to pilot the aeroplane. She wanted to be a passenger in it. But her family said, you know, this is far too dangerous. Her children were saying, mother, you can't do it. And in the end, Amy Guest sort of um, succumbed to the pressure. So she set out a search for a woman. And she was very specific. It had to be a lady, someone well-educated. And Amelia fitted the bill. So Amelia took Amy's place and agreed to be the first woman to cross the Atlantic. And this wasn't as a pilot. She was simply a passenger. And actually, Amelia hated it. She said she felt like a sack of potatoes. But nonetheless, when she arrived on the other side, there was instant fame. Um, I mean, Lindbergh had only gone across the Atlantic the year before. So this was really seen as something very daring, possibly suicidal. She wasn't paid for it. But she quickly had a lot of commercial opportunities. You know, she wrote a book about it called 20 Hours and 40 Minutes, which was the duration of the flight. And she endorsed products like Lucky Strike cigarettes, even though she didn't smoke. Cosmopolitan made her their first aviation correspondent. So she was really, you know, hitting the headlines. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And one key figure who helps her capitalise on this fame is her publisher, George Palmer Putnam. Can you tell us a bit more about him and their relationship? Putnam was a, a publisher. He had he was very from a very well connected family. So his family had actually known the Roosevelt. So he had known the future president when they were both young. He had fingers in a lot of political pies, and he had managed to wangle to get to be the publisher of Lindbergh's Child Lindbergh's book. And so he was very much involved in that early world of flight. So he had been involved in the search for someone to take part in Amy Guest's aircraft to fly over the Atlantic and had come, had met Amelia then. But George was married at that point to a wonderful woman who was um, herself an heiress and, and very involved in working towards suffrage for women in the United States. And they had a son. But nevertheless, within a year, he and Amelia were in a relationship I think, I mean, they had an awful lot in common. Um, Putnam, like Amelia, wanted to um, break frontiers. He published a lot of adventure kind of books on expeditions, and he would go on some of those expeditions himself. And Amelia had this great need to set world records and to go out and knock down barriers. And they shared a sense of humour. I think they were 
I mean, I think they were both in love. It's sometimes said that he exploited her, but it seems to me that she was very keen to promote her own case as well. I think they just worked very well together. Eventually, he divorced his wife, or they got divorced, and he married Amelia the next year in a very private ceremony. They didn't do it for the publicity. They really did have a very strong relationship. And uh, it was just the two of them and two witnesses. And that morning, she presented him with this fantastic letter, which I wish I'd known about before I got married. I'd have done the same. So she wrote um, her, her terms and conditions, really, for the marriage. She suggested that they should review it in a year's time and should be able to break up if it wasn't working out nicely. Um, but she also described, she said that she had no truck with what she called this medieval concept of being faithful and that neither of them should hold the other one to being faithful. And also they shouldn't interfere with each other's work and play and that she couldn't live in any cage, however luxurious. So on the morning of his wedding, George is handed this note by his bride, and, uh, and he's very happy with it because he knows, you know, he loves Amelia. He knows that freedom is at the core of her, and he doesn't want to take that away from her. So no problem, they have a very happy marriage. And you mentioned earlier in that answer that she has this need to set world records. Can you tell us about some of those in a bit more detail? So she had first got into a plane in 1920, and she's very quick to progress things. So she buys her first aircraft in 1921, a little yellow Kinnear. Uh, she called it the Canary. She sets records in that for women's altitude. She flew to a height of 14,000 foot. That was quite daring. It was actually overtaken. I mean, this is the very early days of flight, and these records are being broken all the time, and the press is following it. So that was broken the next year, and then she retook it. And, you know, she sees herself very much part of this pioneering group of women. She, she dresses in trousers in an aircraft. She cuts her hair short in that style. They see themselves as really at the forefront of aviation. And they are helping to every world record develops aviation technology and sets another goal. And can you tell us more about how she uplifts other women? And I'm thinking particularly about her involvement in the group, the 99s. Amelia Earhart was a feminist. She said that she hated the term being a feminist, but she absolutely was, consciously was. And if you look at her actions, I mean, even as a young girl, she she kept um, a little cuttings book of newspaper clippings every time she came across a story of a woman excelling in what was then considered to be a man's world, whether that was in academia or sport or in business. She was always very proud of herself jumping from a higher rock than the lads. You know, all of that sort of thing informed her even at an early age. And in um, she, she entered the first competition just for female pilots. It was from L.A. to Cleveland, a women's derby. And I mean, she didn't win it, actually, but she was absolutely horrified that the press referred to it as the Powder Puff Derby, which is what it became famously known as. And so the very next year, she is a co-founder of an organisation, probably the most important organisation in America for female pilots called the 99s. And she is their first, the next year she's elected their first president. And the reason they've got together is to push for women to be able to enter the same competitions as men so that they get a shot at the same, you know, big prize money that the men have a, have a right to compete for. And even though the women have less experience in these larger aircraft, which are sometimes called the widow makers, they're never going to get a chance unless they fight for it and then they can build up their experience. So, so she is always pushing for women to have more opportunities, particularly in flight, but also in every area. So in 1935, she joins Purdue University and she is really fighting for women to enter into higher education and promoting women's careers. Freedom in every respect is really at the core of this woman. 
So going back to think about some of her records then, I wanted to ask, before we come on to the bulk of our conversation, which is going to be focused on her infamous flight of 1937, whether she experienced any significant hardships or challenges in these earlier flights. A lot of the flights were very perilous. The early flights she was doing uh, were in pioneering early aircraft before they had parachutes. I mean, the, the danger is inherent to the work. It's, it's fundamental to it. In 1930, she became the first person, the first woman to fly an autogyro, which is a sort of early type of helicopter, and then set records in that. And of course, in 1932, she became the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. It, I mean, several women had previously died in the attempt. It was considered virtually suicidal. But with Putnam's support, he was her promoter and excellent at helping to raise the funds. She set off in 1932. And it was a really dramatic flight. Her altimeter failed when they were um, acro- when she was across the ocean. And then she saw that there were flames coming out of her exhaust. Actually, that wasn't that wasn't that uncommon. So that was seemed manageable. But then her her plane was getting rather sluggish, and it went into a downward spiral. And she managed to to right that, but only going through some fog. And then she saw. I think probably what frightened her most was that in her cabin the fuel gauge was leaking. And then she became very concerned that some leaking fuel might ignite with the exhaust flames, and obviously that would be catastrophic. So at that point she flew the the last of the journey quite low over the water because she said she'd rather drown than burn to death. I mean, so yes, these were incredibly dangerous flights. I should say, of course, that she arrived safely in Northern Ireland. A couple of farmers in a field came up, said, where have you flown from? America, absolutely astounded them. And again, that really put her on the map. So she was getting telegrams from the great and the good, the president of America, and and she went off. But even at that point, she wasn't sure that her future would be in aviation. It's rather wonderful that she went to London on a small hop from there. And uh, while she was there, she was quite fetid. She sat between Nancy Astor and Winston Churchill at a dinner, but she still took time to go and see Toynbee House, which was the um, inspiration for Denison House, where she had worked. So I think she was still thinking that she might perhaps have a career in social work. So she wasn't sure yet what the future was holding. And coming on to what the future did hold, I'd like to talk about her most infamous flight in 1937, where she mysteriously disappears. Before we come on to her fate, can you tell us what she set out trying to do here? So by 1937, a lot of the uh, records had already been set. But one that was left was to fly, to circumnavigate around the entire world. Now, this is something that no woman had ever done before. And Amelia Earhart decided that she wanted to do this as her last great world record before she turned 40. She was 39 years old. And so she and she also decided that she would be the first person to fly around the world, circumnavigating around the equator. So that's the fattest part of the world, the the longest distance. So she was giving herself an extra challenge there that no one had ever done before. So, again, they um, they set everything into place. George Putnam was supporting her, lots of PR. She was doing lecture tours to raise money, all of that sort of thing. And she invested it in a Lockheed Electra. This one didn't have a name. She didn't want any other name in the papers alongside her own, quite quite savvy to the PR of it all. And she set off going first to Hawaii. She had a couple of navigators. Because they were going so far over the oceans, she needed to be the pilot, but she needed to have a navigator with her. Um, she started off with two, Harry, Harry Manning and Fred Noonan. They were both naval navigators, but Noonan had gone on to really be the world's leading celestial navigator. 
He also used dead reckoning, which is sort of mass calculating, you know, wind speeds, your height, your, your aircraft speed and so on, and constantly making placements to know where you are. So they, they flew the first leg, which was to Hawaii, where um, Manning actually made quite a heavy landing. And at that point, he left the team. From there on, it would just be Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan as her navigator. And they also got rid of their marine frequency radio at that point because Manning is the, the real, he was the expert in Morse and using that. So that it just became an extra weight. So they got rid of that. And then they set off for the next leg. But we don't know entirely what happened. We don't know if it was pilot error or technical fault with the aircraft, some combination of that. But the aircraft went into a ground loop, which means it span around on the ground and it crushed quite a lot of its undercarriage. And it was clear that they couldn't continue. That aircraft, they had to take the Lockheed back, freight it to America, had to be mended. Costs were mounting. I think it was about another $13,000. And she had an opportunity to stop, but she thought she couldn't because she would always be remembered as the woman who crashed in Hawaii rather than the, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic. She was very proud of her achievements. So they managed to raise more funds. They went back still the same year, set off again, and this time she did a perfect takeoff. And then they have this extraordinary journey up to the summer of 1937. They've now changed direction. They're going west to east now around the world because, because of the delay, the monsoon season had come into their flight path if they were going the other way around. So they're now going the other way around the world. So they go first across America. And of course, they're hopping in stages all the way along, which gives them time to stop. She's writing articles for the newspapers every time they stop. They have to get the kit, all of the aircraft technical stuff checked out. Uh, they have a few radio problems, so they have to have it fixed. So that gives them a bit of a chance to do a bit of sightseeing. They stop off everywhere they go. I think they went deep, deep sea fishing in America. They go off again, go all the way across South America, which is fantastic, without major problems, a few little technical hitches, again, some radio troubles. From South America, across Africa, and I think Amelia, when she was a child, she'd always been a voracious reader and she had read all these stories of adventure in Africa. And for her, flying across it was real vindication. She really was adventuring. Um, and they, they were quite concerned in case they came down in Africa in uncharted territory. So they had with them a, a machete and some pith helmets, things that they thought they would need. You know, they didn't need them. They kept going on. Got to uh, what's now Pakistan was then India and across Southeast Asia with quite a few stops and actually uh, on the on the stop towards Singapore she raced a KLM pilot on a commercial flight and won $25 of him quite symbolic uh, by reaching Singapore first and then they hopped over to Australia and then to New Guinea Papua New Guinea now and made a stop there by that point I mean they'd they were exhausted they'd undergone hardship they had maintained an amazing relationship um, she's in this very tiny cockpit. It was only, I mean, not big enough for her to stretch her limbs out. Noonan's further down. He's got he's got a big bit of glass put in the, the ceiling above him so that he can navigate by the stars at night. And the only way they can communicate is they had a fishing rod, which they cut down and put little notes on the end of it and passed it between each other. But they've done this really epic journey and they virtually finished. They've only got one big leg left which is from New Guinea back to Hawaii um, but they can't do the whole thing in one go because they can't carry enough fuel so they'd looked at various ways at refueling in the air that was quite daring they, they decided against that and in the end they decided to stop at a, a tiny island in the Pacific called Howland Island it's a, a coral atoll a barren dot in the middle of the Pacific it was about 
two and a half by half a mile wide, absolutely tiny, and it would need real precision navigating to reach it. But everyone had great faith in Fred Noonan. And so they, they were all set. And in just, if they got to Howland Island, then they could do the last hop to Hawaii. And she would be the undisputed queen of the skies before she turned 40. And did they get there? They did not. They did not get there. So they took off. Everything seemed to be going well. They had radio communications in place. There were a number of navy or coastal cutters, um, ships below to provide radio connection to her on the journey. The one near Howland Island was called the Itasca. But it, radio was always difficult. The, the signal was quite weak, perhaps because there was a lot of commercial traffic early on on the flight. Um, but quite a few signals did go through. And uh, eventually they radioed several times they were they managed to connect several times and they connected with the Atasca but they had certain schedule to meet for when they would send and when they would receive messages things weren't going entirely to plan and it was became obvious that they weren't receiving the Atasca's broadcasts I think the Atasca didn't realize that they had ditched the marine frequency radio so that was one problem but I think probably we know they'd had a number of radio failings on the earlier route and they wouldn't have set off again without their radio being fixed but perhaps there was an electrical problem a wiring thing or something that which why this problem was recurring so it seems they weren't receiving the signals they should and this is vital because that helps with the navigation, with the dead reckoning navigation. So Noonan would have been, uh, you know, at a real disadvantage there. And then as they're approaching, the Itasca hears Amelia's voice coming over, rather sort of breaking at times. But she comes over and they hear her saying that she is um, approaching and they they begin to get quite concerned. So they start broadcasting constantly on different frequencies and then they set up, as agreed, a big column of smoke. They're, they're um, burning oil in their engine room. They send up this big column of smoke. And the Atasca reported that it was quite a clear, still day. So they reckoned this column of smoke would be visible for at least 10 miles and, and quite probably further. So that's another sort of beacon for Amelia and Fred to latch onto. But they never arrive. And one of her last messages, she says that they are running low on gas. And then she says, we are on the line, so expecting to see them below. She says, we're flying north and south trying to find you. And that was the last message to come through. So what are some of the theories about what happened to her? Well, there are many theories, um, as always springs up in a vacuum of knowledge. So uh, in the immediate hours afterwards, there were lots of reports of radio signals from her, from amateur people who were listening in. Possibly they had heard the Atasca continuing to radio out to her, or possibly they were hoaxes. There was so much PR around it. Um, lots of radio enthusiasts knew where to sort of tune in and what to say. So it's quite possible that some of those were hoaxes. But the Atasca had sent out a message and immediately went to Howland Island to try and find her. But nothing was found. Roosevelt, the American president, uh, Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife, were both friends of Amelia. And so Roosevelt, the president, launched a massive search and rescue mission. Four massive ships went out. Eleanor Roosevelt was on one of them. It took the fastest one 11 days to get into the area, though. There were 4,000 men involved. It was a cost of $4 million. And in the end, it was, you know, political nightmare to continue. And the search was called off after two weeks. 
So then you have a whole series of more theories of what had happened to her, and many of them are just absolutely ridiculous. There was a theory that because she was friends with the Roosevelts, that perhaps she was an American spy, and she had agreed to fly her plane to a different atoll and lay low, just giving the American government authority to do a search of the Pacific Islands. And this particularly took hold after 1941. In December 1941, we have Pearl Harbor, the Japanese bombing of the American port, which precipitated America joining the Allies in the Second World War. And so there was this feeling, there was rising hatred against the Japanese and feeling that this may have been a political thing, but there is absolutely no evidence of that. And I think the most telling thing is that she never resurfaced. Um, And I don't think, I mean, she loved her mother, she loved her sister, her husband, and she loved her career. She wouldn't have just disappeared. There are stories that perhaps she was taken prisoner by the Japanese and even executed, and various bits of um, so-called evidence has surfaced for that, but none of them hold water. So a photograph was found purporting to show two so-called Caucasians in Japanese custody, but it seems that that photograph came from 1936, so before her attempt, bones were found. Somebody sent a team of collie dogs out who reportedly caught a human scent, but nothing was found there. So there really is no evidence for any of these theories. So what do you think happened to her? Well, it, it seems quite clear that at some point they had gone off route. We know they couldn't have been too close to the area because they'd have seen the column of smoke. Quite likely there was problems with the radio. We will never know. There is a huge margin for pilot or navigational error. I mean, these guys had been in this tiny cockpit for many hours. They were already tired. One of the last messages from New Guinea that Amelia had sent back to George Putnam, her husband, had talked about radio problems and personnel issues. Well, there were only two personnel. That was her and Fred Noonan. It could just have been that they flew close and the shadow of the clouds on the water or just the clouds obscured the island. It was this tiny point they had to find or the reflection of the sun on the water could have blinded them to the location as they flew over. She had reported on the radio that they were running out of gas. They were still searching for the island. So it seems almost certain that their aircraft ditched into the sea. Now, they did have a life raft and paddles and inflatable jackets, um, but they were stored at the back. I mean, even the aircraft smashing into the sea could have destroyed the aircraft at that point. They could have died on impact. If they survived that, would they have been able to get the um, life jackets to get the raft up and running? Possibly. How long would they have survived? A storm came in later. There were reportedly 10-foot waves across parts of that region. Also, we know that that particular part of the Pacific is its just shark infested. So, I mean, there are so many threats to life if you come down in that area. Certainly, we don't know exactly what happened, but the plane pitched into the sea almost certainly and they died. So why do you think then that her story has captured people's imaginations for so long? Well, there's so much in there. She's really emblematic of this American pioneer spirit. Um, She's a good American woman and she's also a woman. So she's also fantastic for showing, you know, being such a beacon for what women can achieve, that women should are quite as able as men and should be as free as men to take on the same challenges. And I think there's also, I mean, she was 
a world record setter. She was the first woman to pilot solo across the Atlantic. I mean, these are huge achievements. She was a massive celebrity. Um, you know, she it was this very glamorous age of flight. She had her own fashion line. I've got to say very practical clothes, which I like. So, But, you know, she was this massively recognisable face. And above all, of course, it's a mystery. You know, we don't know exactly what happened to her. We're pretty sure what is logical. But it remains unresolved. In a way, she will always be 39, out to set a world record. And as we near the end of our conversation, I'd like to ask you the three questions that we ask all of our guests in the Life of the Week series. The first of which is, what would you say is Amelia's biggest success? Her greatest success was demonstrating that women are as able as men even when it's seen as socially unacceptable for them to take on the same challenges and to absolutely succeed in those challenges. So yes, in in setting that example that women should be as free as men. And what would you say is her greatest failing? Well, she did not succeed in becoming the first woman to circumnavigate the earth in the air. I mean, that that record wasn't set for another 30 years. And, and I must say that we should know more the name of the woman, Jessie Mock, who did set that record. But Amelia, she didn't achieve that, but she did achieve the fame, the celebrity. She achieved so much in terms of her, the way she pushed women in pioneering and pushed the machines to support ever more um, tests of endurance and ability. Um, so I think, and she did once say actually that one of her, her greatest fears was to grow old slowly. So even where, you know, her biggest failure in not succeeding in setting that world record, she she achieved still so much. And lastly, what would you say is her legacy today? She has a lot of legacies. I mean, there are hundreds of monuments to her across America and, and overseas, you know, where she first landed or departed in Hawaii and in Northern Ireland. And there are living legacies as well in that, you know, the 99s had an Amelia Earhart Award to encourage uh, female pilots And there are a lot of academic institutes that have Amelia Earhart bursaries and awards for women in higher education and in careers. But I think beyond that, her greatest legacy is her example and the inspiration she's provided to generations of both men and women. That was historian Claire Mully, historian and author of books including The Women Who Flew for Hitler, published by Macmillan in 2017. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past. Mm